Hello and welcome into NCBI's Technology Podcast. My name is Stuart Lawler. This is episode number 47 for April 2016. Thank you, as always, for downloading and subscribing to our monthly technology podcast. Hope you've all had a good month and a belated happy Easter. Now, stay with us for the next... uh, We're with you for just over an hour and a half, actually. It's our longest podcast to date, but I think, at least I hope, you're going to find it's worthwhile. Because we'll be speaking to Dave Nason, who went for a whole month from his beloved iPhone with an Android device. You'll find out how he got on. Amy Hines Fitzpatrick, NCBI's Corporate Engagement Executive, is with me to tell us all about Twitter and how it's used. And finally, Brian Hartston gives us the highs from this year's CSUN Assistive Technology Exhibition. That's all coming up on this month's edition of NCBI's Technology Podcast. Starting us off this month, something that I think lots of people are going to enjoy because it's the debate, friendly debate in lots of cases amongst uh, mobile device users around which is better, which is is more useful, uh, which works better. And not just from an accessibility standpoint. Of course, we're talking about iOS versus Android. What do you like? What do you not like? And I think people who've been using one or the other platform for a long time are quite passionate about their platform of choice. In November 2014, we spoke with Marco Zea in Germany, who at the time was uh, had, was just concluding a very interesting experiment called 30 Days with Android, where he ditched his iPhone, went cold turkey with an Android phone. And unfortunately for Marco, he gave up because he got so frustrated. Well, someone a little nearer to home who's been trying this over the last 30 days is Dave Nason. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. Thanks. It's it's kind of strange, I have to say, talking to you about something that's not related to Apple. Um, I know. It's, <laughs> it's, for the box, isn't it's it? kind of funny. Uh, we'd probably be referring in brief to Apple as we go through um, this discussion, but we're talking about a, um, an experiment you did similar to Marco, uh, which you called a month with Android. Just to clarify, did you did you did you actually finish the month? I did. Oh yeah. wow! Okay, I, um, very good. Um, maybe maybe just to start off, what. What made you, why did you want to do this? It's, I'm, I'm curious about technology, I suppose, more than anything. I've been using Apple for, what, six years now? And I just want to see, well, what is life like on the other side, I suppose? You know what I mean? I can't, it's hard to kind of speak about what's so great about Apple or what I enjoy about Apple's products. I'm sure there could be something better out there for all I know. So you always have to be open to these things, I think. And yeah, just thought it'd be a bit of fun. <laughs> now, I, I suppose many people who might do this would say, OK, I'll, I'll buy a, another SIM or get a, you know, a, a, a prepay SIM maybe and just run two phones. But, but you really chose to go cold turkey as well, didn't you, like Marco? Yeah, I did. And the reason for that was because a few years ago, I did actually pick up a, a cheap tablet with Android on it. And I found it mostly sat in a drawer and not really being used because you're in your habits. You're not using it day to day. Are you not forcing yourself to use it day to day? Whereas if I made this my phone, this was the phone I had to use, then I was much more likely to actually get the real experience. That was the theory anyway. Okay, let, let's talk about the phone you chose, because I suppose the iPhone, when you're on this iOS Apple ecosystem, you have the iPhone, you have different models, but you have the iPhone and that's it. You don't have anything mm-hmm. else. With Android, you have 
I think it's fair to say hundreds of uh, of handsets to choose from. But you do have to think a little bit about what you want, don't you? Yeah, there's a lot of choices out there. There's a huge price range. There's a huge range of screen sizes. You really do have something for everybody when it comes to Android. Um, what I went for was one I just heard of through, I think, CNET or one of these kind of mainstream tech podcasts. And it's it runs what you might call pure Android. So it's Android as Google intended it. Um, whereas, you know, other manufacturers add their own bits of software onto it. So it is a bit of a minefield. <laughs> and, 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 and I suppose this is because Google is open uh, and they, they probably, they, they would be uh, very open to manufacturers like Samsung or LG or whoever else it is putting their own, uh, their own kind of brand on Android. Is that it? I believe so, yeah. And they can kind of affect how the operating system works to some extent at least or how it, you know, how it works or how it looks. And then they have their own apps as well so if you buy a samsung phone you might have the gmail app and the samsung mail app both pre-installed okay and mm-hmm. and my understanding is that um in relation to updates unless you use an, a phone that has pure android as you did you won't necessarily get updates immediately until your your manufacturer is ready to give them to you exactly yeah because they have to get the update i guess from google and then google or sorry google pass it on to them they then have to do what they need to do before they can send it out to the phone. And I think even some of the networks might even um, affect this as well for some reason. So, yeah, you don't always get updates, um, or certainly not quickly with uh, some of the manufacturers' ones, so I've read anyway. With the Nexus range, you do, because they're running pure Android. I think part of the deal is when Google release an update, it kind of, just goes out to you that's similar to what those of us using iPhones would be familiar with. Okay. I, I, I did a, a little test with Android. I didn't throw away my, my iPhone or anything like that, but I did. I played with Android in uh, August 2014, and I got a cheap Motorola. And again, the nice thing about the Motorola, because um, Google, I think, still own Motorola, they certainly did at the time, uh, they, again, have the stock Android, and you'll get the pure Android updates as they're released. All right, so you've got your phone, and I suppose you were eager to get started. And um, one of the key things when you turn on your iPhone, you uh, you triple tap the home button, and you kind of get going straight away. You have your setup screen, and, and in general, everything speaks. There are sometimes it doesn't quite work, but in general, it does. How was that experience with Android? Um, tricky at first so I ran into an issue so I initially I googled it and said okay can I do this I found that the gesture that would allow me to turn talk back on and lo and behold it didn't work so I panicked but I have limited vision and I saw a little keypad kind of on the on the screen and it occurred to me oh maybe I need to put a, a sim sim pin in here Um before I can turn talk back on, um, because at the time I hadn't yet got the adapter to make my iPhone SIM card work. So I had actually was using temporarily a third-party SIM, and uh, it had a PIN code. Le- led me to, um, to figure out maybe that that was the issue. So I turned off the phone, took out the SIM card, tried again, and this time it did work. So, so having the, that, that, uh, that prompt for the pin on the screen was stopping whatever talkback needs to sort of to, to start automatically because there was a, a already um, some kind of a, a dialogue on screen. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think it's literally that it was, it was 
in the way before you actually got to the screen where the two finger gesture would work. So the gesture is you place two fingers on the screen for about two seconds and talk back will start up. But, but it couldn't reach that point of the process because of this synth in. So it's just something to be aware of if anyone's, um, if anyone's putting a new SIM card into, um, into a new Android phone. Okay. You may come across that. I should say that, that a lot of the, what we're talking about today on this podcast, Dave has written about in, in a lot of detail in a, in a blog post, and we'll, we'll talk about the blog in, in a few minutes. But when you, when you took out the SIM card and turned on the phone, you were able to turn on TalkBack with no problems? Yeah, so it's, you know, booted it up like the old Nokia phones. It does a little kind of vibration lets you know it's kind of booting up. Okay. Um, and after a few seconds, I simply placed my two fingers on the phone on the phone screen for about two seconds and TalkBack welcomes you to the phone. Now, as well as welcoming you to the phone, I believe it has a nice uh, kind of quick start tutorial, which, which when I was reading about it in your blog, it sounds like this is badly needed on iOS. I can't, I can't think of the number of people who've asked me about a, a, a voiceover tutorial. And I know there's apps, mm. but you have to get them. You know? Exactly. Yeah, I thought this was great. And it didn't go into huge detail. But it was just getting you the basics of how you select something on the screen, how you how you search around the screen for objects, how you open them. You know, um, for someone who's new to this kind of software, that's, I'm sure it's invalu- invaluable. So, so let's talk a little bit about navigation. Um, I was interested to read, and you talk about this uh, in detail on the blog. One of the things I found, and I'm going back again to 2014, and I think Marco Zea mentioned this as well, is that when, because I tend to flick a lot on the screen, I flick around and, mm. and listening for stuff, and I found I had huge problems because it was a bit inconsistent, and it sounds like you had similar issues. Very much so, yeah. I don't think that's changed a huge amount in the sort of 18 months since you were looking at it. It's sometimes it'll work. You'll be on, say, your home screen and you flick right and it'll go to the next icon and then suddenly it won't work or you'll be in a list and it'll just give you a strange sound and you're like, (laughs) what's good? You know, just there's no consistency to it. I don't know why that is. It just, it's like it's not as smooth a process or something. It's, it's, it's annoying, but it, Essentially, it led me to using more of a sort of explore by touch would be the, the lingo for it, where you're moving your, your finger around the screen and searching for the item you want, which is great in certain circumstances. But sometimes you really do just want to be able to flick right or flick left. Yeah, and I, I suppose the thing about explore by touch is as you get more used to where things are on the screen, it's great. But in the beginning, mm. you, you might just need to do a bit of uh, flicking to explore everything that's on the screen. I think there's that, and it's really it depends on what you want to do. What you know on the situation. Sometimes one is better, and sometimes the other is better. So, um, it's nice yeah. to have both. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned sounds there. There's a lot of sounds in Android. That's what I remember. <laughs> now, I, I know you can you can switch them off, but yeah. some of them, I think we were talking off air about this, some of them are useful, but but there's just so many of them. Sometimes it, it gets a bit overkill. Yeah, it seems, I think it's a debatable issue from what I've seen online. Some people love them and some people hate them. Um, it's kind of like, I, do, I don't like some of them, like when you're moving around, on the home screen, I kind of, maybe it's just because I've been using iOS so long, I, you know, you have that little click. It's just a bit more subtle, whereas with TalkBack, you get this kind of ding sound and it just doesn't quite sound right. But then when you're navigating a list, it has a nice kind of sound that kind of goes from low pitch at the top of the list to high pitch when you re- 
to the bottom of the list and it's nice for letting you know kind of where the where list you are. are yeah so. yeah that sounds very good um and speaking of sound uh as well you highlight um something that i suppose for new years in particular could really throw people there's a bit of a funny uh, scenario sometimes where the volume drops so low and um you actually f- figured out the only way to restore volume f- of of talkback was to play a media file because the the volumes are linked is that right yeah, I kind of a part of me hopes I'm missing something here, but I haven't been able to find any other solution. But basically, the if you go into talkback settings and go to volume, you don't actually have a choice to set your talkback volume as such. It just you link it. It's linked to media volume. So do you want your talkback volume to be 100% of media volume or do you want it to be 50% of media volume? <laughs> and so you can't kind of independently change the volume of talkback um, and certainly can't do it on the fly, you know. Um, and I found myself in a situation where the volume was just disappeared. I don't know what happened. I think maybe I was listening to music and I took the earphone out and it just did something that knocked the volume down. And then I couldn't hear anything and I managed to get a, a song playing eventually. And once the song was playing, I was able to up the volume, the volume with the up. buttons. Okay. And then when it paused the music and my volume was back where I wanted it. But ordinarily, if you haven't got any music or other media playing, the volume buttons seem to just change the ringer volume. They don't actually affect talkback's volume, which is and, it's just really irritating. <laughs> and, and, and I suppose if that happened, you know, at a time when you really needed the phone, maybe you're waiting for your halo taxi or something, you know, mm. and you kind of need to be able to track these things. It could be a bit awkward. You're out in the street. Yeah, I'm very to... close to that exact scenario myself. So. Okay. Okay. Um, Home screen and widgets. Uh, you, you write about this, and I suppose we, we all on iOS were so used to the folders. I, I have loads of stuff in different folders on, on sort of one page of my phone. I, I assume home screens, that when we talked about them in Android, are just like kind of pages in, in, in iPhone terms. Is that right? Like a page of apps is a home screen? Yeah. yeah. So on the face of it, you could use it exactly how you use iOS. You just have a grid of icons with all your apps. When you install an app, it it puts an icon on your screen on, you know, the next available space in your home screen. And again, you can have multiple pages. So on the face of it, it works the same, but in subtle ways, it's actually different. So you don't have to have an icon on your home screen. You can remove that, but it doesn't remove the app from your phone. It just means it's not on your home screen. Um, But you do have something called the apps folder, which I chose to put in my dock at the bottom of the screen. And that meant... If I clicked on that folder, opened that folder, I had an alphabetical list of all of my apps. And then I just had a home screen with the apps I use day to day that I really okay. need access to. So, so, so that's a little bit like from Windows terms and going back to the old Windows XP days, putting some stuff on your shortcuts and then going into the programs folder to find Ooh. everything else. It's exactly what I, yeah, seems what to, it's like. Seems I, to make a and lot of I, I liked it, I have to say, because um, there's so many apps on iOS that I kind of go, oh God, I don't even know what folder to put this in. Like yeah. it's kind of a random app and it ends up on page three or yeah, four. Yeah, and, yeah I've done When it. I actually want the thing, I don't know yeah. where it is. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this way, you know, those kind of apps, I can know, I know I can just open the apps folder and find it alphabetically. Okay. Uh, and you, you mentioned the notification center. You actually, you make the point that it's, it, it, it's almost nicer to access in the notification center on iOS because you do it in the same way as a sighted user would do it. Essentially, yeah, you're using two fingers rather than one. But yeah, you can just slide down from the top of the screen 
with two fingers. There's no kind of finding the status bar and then kind of readjusting yourself to three fingers and then swiping. <laughs> you know what I mean? You just yeah. sort of natural. It just feels more natural to me, and there is a kind of fluidity there. You know, I liked. What, what about things like, uh, li- like say the, the the status bar on Android? Checking your battery status and your network strength is all that pretty doable? Uh, doable, but actually less so because I find it much harder to actually get focus onto the thing. <laughs> you know, okay. It felt really, it's almost like it was very, very small or something. And the status bar itself isn't, it's like the status bar itself isn't a uh, section. Like, so you have to hit the exact where the battery is or exactly where the. Okay. So, so, so you can't maybe put your finger on the status bar and then flick right. Exactly. At, yeah. yeah. Okay. Sometimes okay. that will work. If you hit one of them and then you flick left, you, you know, you'll, you'll get the, or right, you'll get to the other one. But then sometimes, like we say, flicking doesn't work so well. So I did find accessing that stuff all doable but awkward. Okay. And a bit irritating. <laughs> um, let's talk about, uh, you, you have a section on your blog called Apps and Activities. And there's obviously whole loads of apps that we all use every day. And you mentioned things like Spotify. You even got to use Apple Music, which I, mm. I was very impressed. Yeah. Um, and things like the Dublin Bus app. And I think your findings in general were that a lot of the apps were quite usable. But you, you, made, you made some interesting observations, in particular the Dublin Bus app, which on iOS, and God, I think we all use it all the time. It's very, very accessible. But on on Android, there are some unlabeled buttons. And it struck me that's probably just because there's not as many people using it and they're not getting the feedback. Yeah. And it's funny. It's like visually, it looked identical, like down to the last pixel. It looked identical to the iOS app. So when I hit those, there's only a couple of buttons, the favorites button in the top right corner on the home screen of the app. And then the save to favorites button. Um when you're actually at a bus stop and I think the refresh button when you're at a bus stop, I think those were the three buttons. And because I've been using iOS for so long, I just knew what those buttons were. So it didn't cause me an issue. But of course, if you hadn't used iOS, you might not (laughs) ever discover those features, you know? So yeah. Is there a feature for labeling buttons like there is in iOS? I believe there is. Yeah. Um, I didn't actually investigate it myself, but I'm, Almost certain I have come across that online before. Uh, you mentioned apps like messaging, and I think the 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 default in in Android at the moment is to use something called Google Hangouts, which is a kind of a, I guess it's some kind of group online chat, a bit like WhatsApp, is it? I think it is. Yeah, and you can do people use um, people who record say video podcasts would often use Hangouts, so because it does video as well, um, and yeah, it's for messaging and. It's a general, I think, voice and text messaging service, essentially. Uh, use of email. Had you any problems using email? Do you, you didn't use the, the default email app. I think you, you downloaded an app, did you? Uh, I played around with email a bit over the month. So it started off with um, the Gmail app that's default. I found, I, I'm personally, I don't like threaded emails, you know, the conversation view. Yeah. And I couldn't see them in settings, even though I turned it off in settings, it was still in conversation view. I just couldn't figure out how to get the Gmail app out of that view. So I abandoned it and I tried Outlook because I was aware it's accessible on iOS and it was accessible. And then I uh, I was looking at a, a website, actually quite a good website I'd recommend to anyone looking at Android called Inclusive Android. And they did a poll where they actually asked what's the best uh, email app and an app called Aquamail won that poll hands down so I checked that out and again very accessible but just not quite as usable as 
on iOS mm. uh, for me. Okay, okay. It it sounds like from an accessibility perspective, in particular from screen reading, and, and I think you kind of do hint this at the very end of the blog, that while every while there's a lot of stuff that's usable, it may be a little rough around the edges in places. Yeah, and it's kind of the navigation things you're kind of used to. So like in email, it's so easy to sort of just hit the edit button and select a load of emails. This is on iOS mail app. You know, you can select a load of emails and dump them into a folder or using the actions menu in the router, you can just, you know, flick up, delete, and you're done. You're missing those kinds of features. So everything is, everything just takes a little bit more work, I felt, than Android for me. You found web browsing to be a challenge. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't get a handle on it. It was... It's, and it, it partly feeds in with the idea of the kind of the flicking because you know if you're on reading an reading an article and you just kind of flick right to go to the next section, the next section, the next section, or obviously you can do read from top. Now you can do the read entire article from top kind of gesture on talk back, but sometimes you don't want that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes you just want to kind of go down the page, find what you're looking for, and because it's like the the elements on the page aren't as well defined as on on iOS, so it's yeah, it's quite difficult to describe, but it's it's very difficult to do, and you haven't got things like heading navigation. And I suppose you you do you are missing because we have all come to love the rotor, and it's mm. so easy to just move around and to change the gradient um, of yeah. navigation. You you just don't have that that level of detail on Android. You don't. No, you don't. There are kind of character line paragraph, but then you know, just say you get it into paragraph, you're then depending on the left right. If you switch it to paragraph, that means that your left and right swipes are now going by paragraph. And we talked earlier about how they don't work very consistently. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, okay. so right, web browsing is a challenge then. Okay. Um, something- Firefox actually had a really good support, apparently, a couple of years ago for web browsing on Android, but it's recently disappeared. So... <laughs> it's, uh, that was a bit disappointing and I suppose it is interesting because Android is one of those things that literally is changing every day so mm-hmm. you know if, if if someone listening to this podcast tries out Android in the next few months you may uh, get different results to what Dave got or indeed what I got a, a year and a half ago um, the, the one of the really interesting things about Android one of the great things is there's a huge amount of speech voices of uh, text-to-speech voices mm. including eloquence and you mentioned that in your blog <laughs> It's. I think that's just fantastic that eloquence is available on Android if people want it. And for, for seasoned screen reader users, I suppose, it's something that they would welcome. And those people who really like to have the speed cranked right up. Yeah, I'd say so. And like, I, if I was going long term on Android, I probably would have got it. Um, you know, we all know how, how effective a voice it is. Um, but you've got so much more than that as well. So you've got acapella and uh, vocalizer. And I'm wouldn't be surprised if there's other companies doing it as well. But certainly those two big companies for voices have apps. You download the app and you can browse through, listen to samples, and then download the voices you want at a price. Yeah, what, what sort of prices are, are voices? I mean, we're, we're not talking lots, are we, for these things? Um, I think they were in the region of three to four euros. Okay. And, and all this is done through the Google Play Store, which is like the app store on, on, on iOS. Exactly, right? yes. Okay. So you just search for acapella or if you just search for TTS or anything like that, you'll, you'll come across these voices. Okay. Now, Android and low vision, I suppose it has long been 
accepted, I suppose, and certainly I know lots of people with low vision have said it to me, that uh, there is a much greater choice in Android. In general, iOS and low vision hasn't been as fluid and the development mm. hasn't been as constant as for screen reading. And I think you liked the low vision options in, in Android. Yeah, I did. And I'd agree with that stuff. Like I've occasionally, I'm screen reader dependent, but I have some vision and I, I do like to be able to magnify things at times. And I find Zoom quite buggy over the years on, on uh, iOS. Um, and also, especially since iOS 7, the, and I think it's something we probably talked about on the podcast, was the, uh, the lack of contrast and a lot of kind of, a lot of screens are quite difficult to to kind of see at times um, on iOS, and I know a lot of low vision people have had issues. Apple have addressed them to a point with extra accessibility settings, but I would say Android is ahead on the low vision side, partly just because it's naturally a more, it's less kind of vibrant in terms of its colors and translucency and stuff like that, um, and there's kind of just naturally a higher contrast in it, and also then its magnification is uh, is really good as well. And I suppose the great thing about that for people with low vision is it doesn't tie them to, you know, a, a very expensive phone because sometimes mm. an iPhone, iPhones can be. And also there's a much greater selection um, for people with low vision to choose from, which is really good. Yeah, there's a, there's a great selection there. So, and like I say, I think the, I think low vision people particularly would, uh, should, should look seriously at, at Android. So, Dave, let me, when you got to the 21st of March, um, you know, where you kind of go and I can't wait to whip out the SIM card and put it back in the iPhone. And actually, uh, just on that, on that thought, did you have, did you go through the whole process of, you know, because you would have had texts maybe and maybe things that have come into your phone over that month? Did you have to transfer data back or did you just say, no, it's fine, I'll leave it? Yeah, I, yeah, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) You were so glad to get back. (laughs) I just don't think, I don't think it can be done. I don't think you can transfer messages either direction. And even WhatsApp is really frustrating. It's great, but it's really frustrating because on Android, it backs up to Google Drive and on Apple, it backs up to um, iCloud. So they're not cross compatible. Um, But uh, yeah, I was looking forward to getting my phone back, if I'm completely honest. And it's like, I I did enjoy the the month doing it and learning a new system and all that stuff but it was just harder to get things done versus ios ultimately (laughs) that's why i was happy to be back on my iphone i I remember reading uh marco zay's blog at the time and and he sort of referred to it as just coming back it was i think i think the phrase he used was it was like coming back home everything was just nice everything was where he expected it to be it was consistent and again he made this this big um point about the sounds that the sounds on iOS were just, and he just liked them, you know? Yeah. And, and I suppose it is a very interesting experiment, I guess in some ways, because you've been using iOS for so long, because I've been using iOS, and I think most people uh, have been using iOS for so long, it is very difficult to make the switch and to change yeah. the mindset. And I suppose we're not saying that there's nobody using Android and, and not doing very well. In fact, we're going to talk about that on next month's podcast. But, you know, it's a, it's a big shift, isn't it? It is. And like, I was really keen to avoid the angry letters and, you know, to be fair to Android, you know what I mean? And to acknowledge, okay, I've got six years on iOS. Of course, I'm not going to find Android as easy to use out of the box. But at the same time, I think I did adapt to iOS more easily in the first place than I did to Android, because once you learn how something works, it generally, bugs aside, works. And on Android, I just kind of found it just a little more frustrating. So even when I knew how the thing was supposed to work, it's frustrating that it wouldn't 
quite do what I wanted at times, you know, and just like I say, certain tasks were just harder to achieve. So it's, it's a great system, but for me, yeah, I was happy to be back on my, <laughs> my iPhone. It's great to have resources like inclusive Android because I suppose they, that that's a whole group, a whole community out there who yeah, are, it's who, not a, it doesn't appear to be as, um, kind of vibrant a community maybe as, or an active a community as something like Apple Viz, but then, on the Apple side, we have the advantage that everybody's using the same thing, whereas in Android, not everybody's. You know, everyone's using different things. Um, I believe another good resource, by the way, and I'm sure it'll come up again next month, is the Eyes Free list. I didn't get involved in that. It's a very high-traffic email list <laughs> that I decided to, to steer clear of, but I believe it's a really good resource as well. Okay. Maybe just uh, finally, Dave, b- 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 uh, to, to, to talk a little bit about phones. Uh, we talked at the beginning about you, you know, you did pick a phone with stock Android. There's lot, there's people who can go into phone shops. There's lots of phones that are very cheap nowadays, Android handsets, that you could probably pick up something for 60 or 70 euro, maybe less. You might even get it free on some kind of contract. Um it, but there's no guarantee, is there, that it's going to give the same experience that you've just had? No, and that's the thing with Android. It's very, very diverse. Um, like we were saying earlier about the different the manufacturers putting their own bits of software on there. There's that factor. There's the fact that a lot of the cheaper phones may not run the newest updates. So they might not have the latest version of the software on it. So I might talk about a feature of Android that isn't on your phone. You know, that kind of thing. So... Um, tread carefully in that sense but there are there's definitely value there to be had so I've no doubt about that so you've you've outlined all of what we've talked about uh, in your blog uh, which people I highly highly recommend people should go and, and read and I mean this is a great resource for people who might be getting an Android if you just get an Android phone you're sitting down how do I do different things because you you explain gestures in quite a bit of detail um, so where can people find out more info uh, the blog uh, URL is www.thetechdemon.com. That's T-H-E-T-E-C-H-D-E-M-O-N.com. All right. Dave, thanks for, for coming in. I hope next time we're going to get you to do 30 days on Windows Phone. That would be kind of interesting. Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, we can, if we can get it, you Is it doable phone. yet? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. We, we'll have to say. I, I think it's improving. Um, it's funny. When I looked at um, Narrator last year, I would have said, yeah, there was, it was quite restricted, but the things I could do, the things I was able to do, the, the tasks I was able to accomplish, there was at least consistency there. We're going back to consistency again, mm. that when I did a gesture, I got the expected result. I think the problem was that there were so few apps and so few things that were accessible. But yeah. maybe we'll bring you back next year to try that. Yeah, put that on the baby Yeah, put that on the extended. Um, Dave, thanks a million for chatting to us and I uh, hope to catch up with you soon. Great, thanks a million. You're listening to NCBI's Technology Podcast for April 2016. And as I mentioned to you on the March edition, we are going to be starting a mini-series all about Twitter. And that's really as a result of your feedback. So thank you very much. And remember, you can email technologypodcast at ncbi.ie. Now, I'm not in studio today. I'm actually sitting in a meeting room in NCBI. And before we 
show you uh, how to use Twitter, and that will come in the May edition when we start our exploration, it's very important to talk about what is Twitter and is it really all about people tweeting about what they've had for their breakfast. To help me get around the uh, mass that is Twitter, I've been joined by Amy Hines Fitzpatrick, who's NCPI's Corporate Engagement Executive. Amy, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Stuart. I've been waiting ages to try and get on the airs here with you. <laughs> you you're kind of interesting because, well, you're interesting for lots of reasons, by the way, but you're interesting because you were listening to us a long time before I knew of you, a long time before you came to work in NCBI. I used to see these tweets from Amy. Um, so you've been a kind of a bit of a long time listener, is that right? I have, and I suppose myself and yourself will be avid Twitter users. Um, so I was able to follow when the podcasts were being recorded and when they were coming up. So yeah, I've been listening for ages, so I feel like a little bit of a celebrity now today with you. Well, it's <laughs> great to have you on. And I think this is going to be the first of many times. It's, it's great to have you in NCBI. We've been doing some interesting projects, uh, not least with the NCBI app that we spoke with Chris White about on last year on the podcast. But I know you're involved in lots of very cool and exciting things. So I think you're a voice we're going to hear regularly uh, on the podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Stuart. Um, let's talk about, because we're, we're recording this just for, for the benefit of people who are listening. Most people will be listening to this podcast in early April. We're actually recording on the 21st of March. And 10 years ago today, a guy called Jack Dorsey in a San Francisco set, uh, startup launched Twitter. But I was reading today, it was actually called TWTR. And it was started as an internal messaging service for the company in which Jack Dorsey was working as an intern. Uh, that's how sort of crazily, I suppose, this whole idea started with this short messaging service. Amy, one of the things people will say about Twitter, in fact, my dad says it. I don't know if he'll ever be listening to this podcast, but <laughs> he does often say, I talk about Twitter, he says, oh, you know, you don't want to know what people had for breakfast. And there is a, there is maybe a bit of a feeling, is there, that people think Twitter is people posting, oh, I'm just going to watch a movie, just gotten up. And there is some of that, isn't there? I guess there is. I suppose that's kind of the beauty of the internet and in that you can make it what you want. So I suppose when Twitter first came around, we were right in the middle of the Facebook era. So, you know, people were trying to understand, you know, is it just for, you know, friends? Is it for networking? How exactly should we be using it? So today it still remains that there will be people on your Twitter feed, if you follow them, that you will see their breakfast, lunch and dinner and you will also see them going for a walk. Whereas now I think the majority of Twitter users are... They're either there for kind of online networking reasons or for kind of brand and self-promotion. So it's quite varied, but you get all sorts on Twitter. Like you get, you know, you get all sorts all over the internet. Mm -hmm. I've been a, I've been a Twitterer, or I don't know what you call it, a Twitter user, for since 2008. But I remember when I started using Twitter, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to use it. I didn't know what the reason was. And I'm not even sure why I signed up at the time. And I remember being quite overwhelmed and confused because I was following, you know, there was a couple of celebrities at the time. I didn't even know who, who to follow or I didn't even know what that terminology meant. So maybe we should start by, first of all, explaining what, what is Twitter? What's its purpose? So I suppose Twitter, really, its main purpose is it's to connect more people together. Um, and I know people say that that is what Facebook was founded for. Whereas with Twitter, it's a bit, it seems to be that little bit more global in that you can follow and engage with people that you might not ever meet in your lifetime. And you can ask them direct questions or try and build a relationship online. Whereas with the Facebook thing, it's, it's generally more kind of your friends or pages you're following. So with Twitter, it can be quite freeing because you can connect with anyone you really want to. Um, and, you, you know, you start following them, you can create lists of people that you like. So a list that I would have would be a list of journalists that I would follow, depending on kind of the stuff that they write about. Um, 
so yeah I think Twitter is kind of you make it what you want it to be um, for me it's really about getting to know more people so whether that be you know CSR professionals or people who are vision impaired or blind like myself so I can learn more stories and figure out exactly you know I suppose the challenges people face and kind of build stronger networks all around Ireland and further afield as well when you mentioned following there how does that are you sort of is, is that almost that you're subscribing to their to what they're tweeting is yeah exactly so if you find someone and you follow them um it's you know you click onto their profile um and the follow button will be kind of to the right hand side and once you follow them they'll come up on your homepage in your kind of news feed so depending on how many people you'll follow all their tweets will come up and if they retweet another person that will also appear in your news feed so when you follow one person you could potentially be exposed to another 10 20 maybe even a couple of hundred people depending on who they're following and that's kind of how the network and the web kind of spun on Twitter because everyone's so interconnected. I definitely found that and I'm still finding it, especially when I use Twitter on my phone. On my PC, I use a, a client and we'll be talking about clients when we delve into this a little bit more in May and June. But on my phone, it will pro- pop up little things and it'll say, because you followed uh, Amy Hines Fitzpatrick, you should follow you know whoever, so somebody maybe who you're linked with. And suddenly I build my circle. So that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. It's I suppose they figure out what what your interests and your hobbies kind of are. And they'll make suggestions to you along the way that, you know, people you might not have even heard of or thought about before. Um, and that's that's kind of great because it, it saves you the hassle of doing all the research to find everyone you want. And you end up learning an awful lot more because Twitter makes suggestions for you. Okay. One of the things people find difficult about Twitter, but I think it's a real art and it's a very, it's a strict thing and a good habit to get yourself into is to be concise. Because Twitter's all about being concise. You can't write an essay. You've got to write, what, 100, 140 characters? 150? 140? 146 characters, 146. I think it is. Yeah, okay. very specific. So you have to say what you want to say in 146 characters. Um, and I think people find that find that a bit of a challenge in the beginning, don't they? They do. I know I certainly did. I suppose it's, it's hard to try and fine-tune everything you're going to say. And it's an interesting point you bring up because last week, just before their 10-year anniversary, Twitter were considering getting rid of the character limit. Yeah. Um, but they decided, you know what, we're not Facebook, we're not Instagram. We actually just want people to say what they're saying. And to not, you know, they don't want people ranting on it. They don't want people giving out. It's just say what you're saying in a very clear and concise way moving forward. Um, So it can be very tricky. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I've gotten caught a few times where I thought I was writing and then, you know, half a sentence appears. (laughs) Yeah, I was certainly glad. uh, I'm I'm kind of like you. I was glad that they sort of said, no, we're going to keep it to the 146. Because I think it's it it makes you it really makes you think about what you want to say before you say it. And that's yeah. no harm for all of us. <laughs> I think that's it, good it to have special. that limit on on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Now there is a a, um, a direct messaging uh, aspect of Twitter which doesn't have that limitation. I think it has ten thousand characters. That was changed not so long ago. So you can send private messages, which is essentially like sending a text message uh, to yeah. someone. Isn't that right? Yeah, which is great. Um, I suppose if you're using Twitter for networking or getting to know different people. The character limit can be quite can be quite difficult. So that direct messaging, it's only between you and the person you're messaging, which is great. And you can develop strong kind of relationships with people. Or you know, if you find something interesting and you want to ask someone a question about it, that direct messaging is fantastic. And people, 
I suppose with Twitter, it's such an instant medium of communication. People generally tend to get back to you quite quickly. I think Twitter is, and I, by the way, I mentioned this on the March podcast. I think Twitter lends itself really well to people with sight loss because in general, it's all text-based. Yes, there are times when people will link to photos. There are even sometimes now we're, we're seeing tweets that are coming up as images and that's a, a separate issue, I suppose. But in general, it's a very nice way to very efficiently get access to information. Yeah, I have to say that's one thing I really liked about it as well. Now I'm getting more into the kind of pictures and stuff like that. But generally for Twitter, it is just a written communication form to me. So you don't have to worry about that extra, you know, putting captions and stuff like that on it because you're saying what you're saying. You're not relying on a second medium of communication. So it is a great way to engage with different people in a very accessible way. Okay, let's talk about one of the really important aspects of Twitter. I have to say one that it took me probably you might believe this three or four years to get my head around and this is hashtags and i couldn't understand what they were or why they might be used and now i wonder how i lived without them what do you how how can you explain hashtags to us so just before i go into explaining it a funny fact about hashtags we're talking about it with chris white our ceo a few weeks ago okay and the hashtag came into being because some guy was at a conference and instead of using up all of his characters to write number, he used the hashtag sign to indicate a number and then that's how hashtags came into being. So essentially what a hashtag is, it's kind of like saving something to a file. So if you go onto, onto Twitter and you want to, you know, let's say we're tweeting about vision impaired people, so you go hashtag VIP and it's like saving your tweet into the global filing cabinet of Twitter. Mm. So if you type that into your search engine, every tweet that was ever tweeted with that particular hashtag or that message in it will come up in your newsfeed. So you can sift through that to find people that you might want to talk to or engage with. So it's really just kind of like an online uh, file saving format, really, in its most simplest form. It's a form of categorization as well, isn't it? Yeah, so exactly. You want to categorize something. You want to do all the tweets about, I don't know, technology podcast. And we might, we haven't done this, by the way, but we could hashtag technology podcast or NCBI or whatever we might call it. And then any comments we could ask people. And indeed, when you go to major events, Amy, and I know you've probably been in this uh, situation, you go to a conference and they say to you, please, if you're using Twitter, please comment and use the hashtag. And they give you a hashtag. And that means you can very easily connect with other people who are interested in that at that conference. Yeah, which is the great thing, I guess, about hashtags. And you've seen that more and more in every event that's happening now. So I was at an event a few weeks ago run by her.ie and the hashtag was hashtag her talks. So even though you were sitting down, you know, you know, you might be in the bottom of the room sitting with your friends, you were engaging with the people talking on stage because yeah. you're using the hashtag and the people sitting up the back of the conference hall because you were all engaged in the same conversation. I had a a weird one a couple of years ago. I was at a conference and this is kind of, it it did kind of get me a bit freaked until I realised how powerful it was. I was tweeting at a conference at the Irish Computer Society a couple of years ago and there was a guy on stage speaking and I thought he was really good and I tweeted a few things and I put in the hashtag and a guy came up to me afterwards and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, hi, um, you're Stuart, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And I, okay, I had a name tag on, so I thought maybe, and he said, uh, thanks for tweeting out. But he said he saw me from my photo on my Twitter page. I yeah, said, oh my God. <laughs> it's very easy it's, for people uh, to be able to find wow. you now. I was uh, bad at the guy, but uh, <laughs> you know it is interesting. Now, one of the other things, uh, Amy, people are doing with Twitter. I've, I've, I've used it myself. Maybe you have too. Is to get customer service 
quickly and maybe efficiently and to get issues resolved. So because it's very public, you're tweeting, you tweet out, you say, hey, at uh, Stuart Lawler Limited, I have no phone service for three days. What's going on? And Stuart Lawler Limited says, oh, my God, that's public. Better get back to that customer. Yeah, exactly. Um, It does happen quite a lot. And I suppose that's kind of... That's a great thing about Twitter as well. It's really enhanced people's voices. So, you know, we always have that customer is always right attitude in business. But I suppose the reality is the customer may always be right, but we might be slow to get back to them. Whereas if it's on Twitter, and it's very, as you said, it's a very public format, you don't know who's going to pick that up. So a few, uh, just a small example was there was a journalist working in, I think it was Today FM or something a while ago. And she was working for like three or four weeks straight. And she just sent out like a tweet saying, oh, really missing my daughter today. Wish I could be home to put her to bed. Really simple, nice, you know, personal tweet. And someone wrote back to her then saying, you know, if you want to, if you want to be at home with your daughter, maybe you should quit your job. Um, And he just, he did it instantly and obviously didn't think of what was going to happen because as soon as that went out, um, a digital media outlet picked it up and did a massive story on it and it went completely viral. So that guy's tweet was forever immortalised because he came out. And I think, I, I don't know his name and I'm happy I don't, but I think he really regrets it. Yeah. Um, so it can be good in terms of getting people to come back to you if you have a problem with something. Um, but I suppose you always have to be that little bit conscious of what you're putting out there as well. You do. And I suppose sometimes because, you know, it happens in life, we, just, we say things, we write things in haste. Mm-hmm. Think a little bit because it is going right out there. And yeah. I suppose everybody can, can see it. There is a way you can protect your tweets, I know. And I know a lot of people, and I certainly wouldn't recommend it either because it does restrict, it seriously uh, restricts the amount of people who can follow you and who can find you out there on the on the on the, uh, on the Twitter sphere, I think they call it. Yeah, that's what we call it, the Twitter sphere. So yeah, a big part of that would be your privacy settings. Now I know some people like to remain quite private. I, I personally, everyone can see what I tweet. I, everyone can follow me, they can unfollow me, they can do what they want. Um, if they do want to follow me, it's at Amy underscore VIP. But I have a public because again, I want to engage with a wide variety of people. But some people do like to have certain tweets private or they want them on certain lists. Mm. So I suppose it's the kind of personal aspect of Twitter again. Well, in, in, indeed, we should put out all our Twitter handles. Let's see how many followers you can get from this podcast. <laughs> at Amy underscore VIP. She's a very prolific tweeter, by the way. Oh, uh, at Stuart Lawler is mine. That's S-T-U-A-R-T-L-A-W-L-E-R. And please, if you're not already, follow at NCBI underscore sight loss. Um, because we do put a lot of stuff out there. Uh, and we also, by the way, always tweet out the updates when this podcast is published. Amy, do you have any... I suppose, practical examples of where Twitter was really useful to you, because I think that's the type of thing people may find helpful. Uh, you know, maybe a time that you use Twitter, you say, yeah, that was very handy for me. I suppose I would use Twitter an awful lot for work um, to try and engage different people and to see where, where different companies are coming from or their priorities. So something that's very helpful is you'll get notifications as to what is trending on Twitter and certain things trend according to hashtags so today on the 10th, 10th birthday of Twitter hashtag love Twitter is trending so I engage with that to see can we get a few more people following NCBI or to kind of engage with our work or hear our story um, or then other kind of simple examples would be connecting with people like yourself Stuart you know you and I met about 15 years ago and hadn't seen each other till a few years ago Indeed. until we met on Twitter again Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know I, th- I find that very useful to be able to connect with people online that I wouldn't I wouldn't have direct access to you know you don't have to leave the house you can actually just tweet someone and see what happens um so for for me it's kind of 
it's getting that kind of information piece I find the most useful because it is all there and it's very concise on Twitter and I have to say you're, you're so right because we as you said we were talking on Twitter for probably about 18 months and then I met Amy in person in the flesh last summer and I was like oh my god that's Amy from Twitter and it, it is almost like meeting a famous person you go oh my god so I think Twitter has that air of it that you kind of think I've known this person for ages now I'm meeting them in the flesh they're very very cool you know <laughs> well thank you Stuart that, that's how I felt more of that um, one of the one of the things I was going to just mention because I, I have a really nice uh, Twitter story that might help people get an idea of what it's like I was going to a launch a couple of years ago in a place called the Gutter Bookshop I don't mind mentioning them because and, and you'll see why in a minute um, they're in town and um, they're not far from Trinity College I think I didn't know where the Gutter Bookshop was but I saw them on Twitter they were tweeting out a lot so I tweeted them and I said hi uh, I think it's at Gutter Bookshop or something. I'm going to a launch tomorrow night of a particular book at 7 o'clock where are you and they, they, they wrote back and tweeted we're you know off uh, such and such a street and I tweeted back and said thank you I'm totally blind could I contact you when I get near and they tweeted back and, with their phone number and said please call us someone will come and meet you I thought brilliant that's amazing and they were so nice and they did they came and met me thanks to, to thanks to Twitter and the person who it turns out who met me said yeah I was ma- managing the Twitter feed yesterday when your tweet came in oh my god so- see it's amazing to have the personal connection behind Twitter because I think sometimes it becomes almost anonymous when you're sitting at the computer on your phone yeah so it is it is those kind of personal connections that you're trying to build yeah. um, through Twitter which is great so there's people listening to this um, to this interview to this chat dying to get going chomping at the bit and if you can hold for a, a few more weeks we'll be getting going in May but Amy maybe top tips for new starters what do you think people should do on Twitter to get themselves comfortable get, yeah. get in there there's a few bits I suppose picking your Twitter handle which is the name on your Twitter yeah um, so mine obviously represents me at Amy my name and then underscore VIP for vision impaired person um, I just think it's a nice kind of play on words um, so picking your Twitter handle I think is kind of important you don't need to overthink it but you know you don't want to put up something silly that you might want to change in a few a few weeks or months mm-hmm. um, another good starting point is also you get the option to write a little uh, bio on yourself and again it's it's character limited so you only have a certain amount of space but those, those the few little bits that you write about yourself kind of help you build your network or connect with the right people so what people typically recommend if you're using it for work is to put in your job where you work your title and then put in something personal about yourself so on mine it would say corporate engagement with at NCBI site loss hashtag changing lives and then under that it says hashtag fashionista want to be because I love fashion Um, so just that kind of you know you can use it for professional and personal reasons but I suppose it's trying to just help people to get to know you that little bit easier Um, they recommend that you have a profile picture um, it's not really for everyone if you don't have a profile picture you come up as an egg mm. um, that doesn't bother me when Twitter first started people were all about the having the picture yeah. you don't really need that now um, but yeah I think picking your handle and writing a little bit about yourself is probably the most important thing and having a good first tweet because you will always remember your first tweet <laughs> oh god it's funny because because it's the uh, because it's Twitter's 10th birthday everybody's talking to, there's a lot of talk on Twitter about what was your first tweet and I think mine I have to look because by the way there's another feature in Twitter we might mention very briefly you can you can ask Twitter to send you an archive of every tweet you ever sent oh no and I clearly <laughs> one weekend had too much time on my hands and I did this so you, you know you make an application and it's very straightforward and then you get a link to download all your tweets and the stuff I was coming out with in mid-2008 was, <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, just learning this thing, not sure what this is. I think that was my first tweet. Learning this thing, not sure what it is. I mean, you know. Well, that's not a bad one. I think at the very end of my first tweet, whatever it said, I thought I would be super cool and put tweet tweet at the end of my first tweet. Tweet. Not so cool now when I look back at it. But, you know. I know. You're at a different stage in your life. We all were at different stages. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Okay. So, and I suppose the the one other thing I would say to people about Twitter is, and I guess we say it about Facebook as well, particularly if you're in the area of looking for employment or you may be moving in your career or you may be wanting to move in different circles. Remember that people nowadays look at everything. They, if, you, if you get stuck into Google, your Twitter will pop up as well somewhere. So just be conscious that it might be a great idea to post that photo at two in the morning with a bit of, bit of text, but um, you know, it, it may not be <laughs> Not so much before the interview. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Funny you mentioned that, that uh, Idel, the singer, is constantly oh, yeah. on Twitter after a few glasses of wine. Oh, she likes the wine. And she, she gets in trouble because she tweets out, oh, of course I'll give you free tickets to my gig in oh, such no. and such a place, and then her, her management team has to run after them then and get tickets for everyone. <laughs> that, that, that's actually interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of, I, my understanding is, and you probably know more about this, but in Facebook, the celebrities, the, you know, the singers, the, the whatever, the actors mm. don't manage their Facebook pages, but they do in Twitter they, because they, they have on their phones and it's all very instant. And that was the big story, of course, a couple of weeks ago where Taylor Swift um, reached out to somebody who was going to one of her concerts and I think the person's brother had recently died of cancer but absolutely loved Taylor Swift and wanted to go even though I think it was the night of the funeral wouldn't mm-hmm. miss the Taylor Swift concert for the world <laughs> and she brought him up on stage now you know you could say it's a publicity thing but it, it all happened through Twitter it does and you see that an awful lot of the time like uh, her daddy put up a video on Twitter a few weeks ago before Edel came to Ireland of these two guys doing a mashup of Edel songs and she brought them up on stage when she played in the, in the three arenas yeah. so you know so it's sometimes okay obviously they're, they are the most amazing things that happen when Taylor Swift bring you on stage or yeah. Edel does that's not always not going to happen, happen. Yeah. it is yet to happen to me yes. but you know it, it does kind of open up your opportunities as well I guess but it is interesting how many people will pick up on a tweet you send out you know if it's something that they want to reply, reply to they will reply quickly and that's the power of Twitter I think you know um, it is definitely it's you don't really know what people's where you're going to how you're going to grab someone's attention yeah it could be the tiniest little thing I remember years ago was that you and I got talking on Twitter over down in the dark I think um, that's how, how we gosh, reconnected <laughs> um, and I just sent that tweet out being like oh exciting event coming up it's going to be great thought nothing of it till I got a response <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that, that's probably an interesting one maybe a good example of twi- a different use of Twitter because um, Amy tweeted something out and my response was kind of hmm do you think it's exciting because I have some reservations and then Amy said something else on Twitter and I suppose we we almost we had this uh, discussion in 146 character chunks of mm-hmm. the the particular topic Amy was talking about, and it began to, I suppose, change my mindset, in in, in Twitter without ever meeting. So, and this conversation then obviously is public. Yeah, exactly. No. Everyone can see it. And I suppose you'd have quite a strong following. So it was great that you were tweeting. I, I was I was laughing it up. I was like, loads of people are going to see this. They're going to come to the event. It's going to be great. I, I, I can't remember how many followers I have. But I, I, I think that sometimes people get hung up on those things as well. How many followers or friends do you have? You know, we all, life is too short. Exactly. And we all follow lots of people. And my, my thing with Twitter is, I usually it's first it's a first thing in the morning thing for me I come in in the morning come into work and I usually tend to you know catch up on the news for 15 minutes before I start 
around my workday and I just catch up on Twitter at the same time and I follow a lot of news sources and then it's usually a kind of a, a 10 o'clock at night thing mm-hmm. but it's it, it, it would it can potentially no more no less than other social networking sites like Facebook it could take over your whole life if you let it oh so my god it really could especially when it's on your phone because you get the notification such and such such and such is yeah, trending yeah, or yeah, three people yeah. are tweeting about a certain topic yeah. and you're always tempted to click into it mm-hmm. <laughs> okay Amy I think uh, first of all thank you for coming in um, I think people have a really good sense now or at least I hope people have a really good sense now of Twitter so in May we'll be delving in to explore some of the technical aspects of how to use Twitter but I hope we're going to see you back again in the very near future definitely um, but for the moment thanks a million thanks a million Stuart March every year is an exciting time, probably the biggest assistive technology um, event in the calendar of such conferences and exhibitions takes place. Of course, we're talking about CSUN, uh, the California State University's um, Assistive Technology and Persons with Disabilities Conference. This year was the 31st such exhibition. I have very fond memories of a number of years attending that exhibition in Los Angeles, some great times, as did our guest, and I guess we can call him our current Respondent for purposes of this interview, Brian Hartston of Hartston Consultancy. But you managed to go to San Diego again this year. Brian, welcome back. Uh, thank you very much. I'm coming in across the pond loud and clear, Let your you, correspondent. You're, you're sounding great. Uh, very nice to have you back. And it's also nice to have you back because it's the second time this year that you're kind of talking about stuff that you haven't created, but that I know there's lots of people very excited about this interview. You were putting it on Twitter today. We're very excited to be talking all CSUN. And I have to say to you before we even start, I'm very jealous. Oh, <laughs> it was a great event, as always. It really was. Okay, let's start, because maybe for, for people who don't know, they hear CSUN. Just what is, what is CSUN? Well, the conference is all about access technologies for people with multiple disabilities. And a significant part of that, of course, and the part we're interested in, is visual impairment. It's hosted, as you said, by the California State University. And it's held in a huge hotel. It used to be in a different venue, which you'll remember, Stuart. Yeah. But this is a a huge hotel, the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego. It's 40 stories just to give a bit of background. Wow. Hundreds of rooms. And I would say the conference is divided into three strands. First of all, there's the presentations, with lots of presentations happening at the same time. There's the exhibition hall, where you can view the latest and greatest technology. And there is a social element. Now, the social aspect is really important. It's a focal point of the event. People meet up perhaps to forge connections with people that they hope to work with in the future or those that they haven't seen for a while. And this social element, uh, Stuart, uh, takes the form of parties. Um, Some of them are private parties. I went to one of those. There was a tweet up where if you met someone on Twitter, you could go to this huge hall and try and find them if you possibly could. (laughs) Sounds interesting. And um, there's um, award ceremonies, one of which was called uh, Heroes of Accessibility, and even a karaoke night 
and a game show. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm really. Ju- I want to go. You're just. You're, you're, <laughs> you're not making this any easier, by the way. It, it. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the social aspect because I remember coming back from CSUN. I, I went five or six years consecutively, and towards the end, 2009, I think was my last year. Came back, and people would say, "So, what did you see?" And I remember thinking, I remember saying, "I didn't really see anything, but I met some great people." And you've just made that point. It's actually there's an awful lot of networking done at CSUN. There really is, and that is the main purpose of it. It's uh, professionals uh, networking with each other. Uh, you don't see sort of Joe Public there. It's not that kind of event. It's it's really a professional exhibition and conference, I would say. We don't have anything like that in the UK or Ireland. No, we certainly don't. Um, so just maybe one other thing to, to talk a little bit about, because I was uh, um, in the uh, exhibition in Los Angeles, and so were you uh, for a number of years. How do you compare the two venues? Because in LA, I remember certainly for a number of years when I was there, it was spread across two hotels. You had to get a shuttle. Yes. And the venue was a bit, you know, you're stuck out beside an airport. There was nothing to do, uh, you know, outside of the conference. Well, there are certainly plenty of places to eat and drink, (laughs) Um, including in the hotel itself, of course. Um, But uh, I like the venue. It's all in one place. Um, You do have, of course, multiple presentation rooms. You can stay there and you don't have to go out anywhere if you don't want to. You can just be part of the the whole conference scene and then just go back to your room and crash. Okay, and I'm sure people did plenty. Um, of both, I, I would say, at, yes. at San Diego. Okay, so Brian, the, the, the products, I think, are the areas we're going to touch on today. And I know you're very excited about all these, which is which is really great. Most of them are Braille related. And that kind of uh, is in connection with a lot of what was coming out of CSUN. A lot of stuff I was seeing on Twitter, people were excited about Braille. And it's so great to hear people speaking passionately about Braille. And we're going to talk about a couple of devices and end up with something that I think you're probably hugely excited about from Amazon uh, and you may end up being the cause of me going and buying one of these things we'll try and hold off on that Um, (laughs) but let's start with a device called the L Braille and every time I hear about a new Braille note taker Brian I kind of go you know do we need something like this but I read the specs on this I listened to an interview and I was kind of wanting to buy one immediately Mm, well, you might have to hold off a little bit, yeah. but I'll come to that later. <laughs> okay. So, yes, this is a very exciting, groundbreaking product. It's called the L Braille. It's developed in Russia and it will be sold by Freedom Scientific. So imagine having a note taking device that many of us have come to rely on, a substitute, of course, for the sighted person's pen and paper, but with Windows built in as well. So, in its simplest form, that is what the L Braille is about. It's a small computer with Windows 10 and JAWS installed. Now, the computer has a docking port to which you can connect a Focus 14 Braille display. So that's 14 cells. So, the idea is that you can control all aspects of the L Braille through the Braille keyboard. So, that is all of Windows and any programs that you choose to install. And there are also some special custom applications which the developers have built as well. So, let me give you, if I could, a run, a quick rundown of what the features are here. We've got a quad-core processor, 1.86 gigahertz, 64 gigabytes of internal storage, um, 2 gigabytes of RAM, Of course, you can extend the storage via an SD card up to 256 gigabytes. 
There's two stereo speakers, a microphone, wireless and Bluetooth 4.0 capability, a 3G modem, which is interesting, for sending and receiving texts and calls. Um, So, obviously, if you have um, a a mobile phone or a cell phone uh, carrier uh, that can provide you with a card, you can just slot that in and away you go. There's a GPS receiver, headphone jack, obviously, USB. And just to give people a sense of what this is like, um, the dimensions are 7.4 inches by 4.7 by 1.5, and it weighs 750 grams. Now, if if you were using this, and I suppose the, the, the target audience for this really is, is Braille users, could you plug a, because some people find, I think they can type faster than they can Braille in. Can you use, you know, maybe a, a Bluetooth keyboard or a USB keyboard? I don't see why not. I mean, okay. it is it is Windows mm. uh, on here, so uh, and, and JAWS, so I don't see why not at all. So what about maybe the use case for something like this? Because, you know, nowadays you'll, you'll see lots of people buying cheap Windows tablets and pairing a Braille display to it and indeed I've done it myself and I'm sure you have but I suppose I'm thinking it's another thing to carry whereas this is a device that's all connected together this is everything you see you could do pr- pretty much anything you wanted with this and uh, there are some specific apps as I said to make things a little bit easier such as note taking and a music player for example but essentially you are running windows on a very small device there are just a couple of other things I'd like to point out before we conclude the L Braille the first is we all know don't we that windows and jaws can crash from time to time. Yeah. Um, so what they've done is they've built in a self-voicing emergency mode. And what this will do, uh, JAWS isn't voicing this information. So if, obviously if it's crashed, it can't do that. Um, so you kind of go into this mode and you've got the option to do things like restart or shut it down, uh, that sort of thing. The other thing to say is that this L Braille is modular. Okay, so if you have JAWS already, that's not going to be included in the final total that you pay. If by any chance you have a Focus 14 Braille display, that too is something you can shave off the cost. So what you're left with is just the L Braille itself. I get you. So if you have JAWS already, use your existing JAWS authorization. And similarly, if you happen to have your Focus, just connect that into the docking station. That's exactly it, yes. Is there any danger that a device like this, and and I mean, it sounds great, but as Windows updates come up and as as sort of tweaks and changes to Windows 10 happen, and as even JAWS versions uh, change, will, will this device, you know, be able to keep up to date, do you think? Well, I think you will be able to keep it up to date. And and the beauty of this, as I say, is it is modular. And there is going to come a time, of course, when um, even the processing unit, you know, the technology will move on and you'll perhaps want a different processing unit in there. So that's the good thing, that you can try and buy newer components or newer software upgrades and so on to suit the technology in the years to come. And we are talking, Stuart, here about the years to come because there's no pricing for this product yet. And also, I I don't expect that we'll see it until later on 
in the year, possibly a bit beyond that in the UK and Ireland. Who knows? Okay, yeah, I mean, mostly these things uh, hit the states first, and then kind of see see how they how they get on. Um, so it it is, and, and I'm assuming because it's all solid state based, it presumably will boot up and, and open applications pretty smartly. Pretty smartly, yes. Um, from what I could gather from the the presentation that was given, um, it will uh, take a, a good twenty seconds or a little bit more to boot up. Um, but once it's done, um, it seemed to be pretty snappy in terms of what it was doing. Okay, so that's definitely one to watch the L Braille, and as you said, it's going to be whilst it's being uh, made in Russia. Um, and actually, that's interesting. You know, some some sort of assistive technology coming out of Russia because I haven't heard much about that before. Well, the historical background is that um, I understand the company who've developed it are actually the uh, Jaws dealer, the Freedom Scientific dealer for Russia. Uh, makes a lot. And so they've got a good relationship there, obviously. Okay, sounds great. Now, the second product, again, we're staying on Braille that I know you want to talk about. And there was a lot of, it's funny, there was a lot of tweeting about this because Humanware have, um, are known for sending these little teaser emails. I got a number of them because I'm on their email list. So, you know, you cannot afford to miss March 21st. We will show the next stage. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, there's something you want to touch. And I said, it must be Braille. Um, and you saw the new um, Humanware Braille Note Touch. Yes, I did. Uh, the future is so close you can touch. <laughs> that was the tagline. Okay. Uh, it is the Braille Note Touch from Humanware. Now, people, of course, um, will be familiar with the Braille Note Apex, maybe a specialist note taker of the kind that we've been talking about. But this kind of product, as you'll know, Stuart, the manufacturers are often criticized for not keeping up with modern technology. And Humanware have done something about this. And in fact, the Touch is the first specialist note taker to be officially certified by Google. So you can tell from that that it uses the Keysoft suite of applications that Humanware have developed over the years. It's a very structured menu system, but with all the access to Google's Play Store on top. So if you want Twitter... If you want Facebook, if you want OpenOffice, uh, access to Google Drive and so on, all of that is available from a portable device. You've got 32 cells of Braille display, of course, on there. You've got uh, Braille input. And I want it. <laughs> okay. And, and so, so just, just in terms of the, the, the screen reader then, Brian, is it, is it using TalkBack and Keysoft or is it just using Keysoft? Or, it's, I mean, it's using Keysoft. It's, well, um, the, the uh, screen reader, which um, Humanware have built. And of course, one of the advantages of that is that everything can be used with grade two or contracted Braille. Okay. So I suppose because I think typically, certainly um, historically within Android, there has been maybe for, for some people, Braille support has been a little challenging and maybe humanware recognized this. Well, I think they did. And obviously, that they realized, too, that they really need, if they're going to keep the note-taker concept going, then they needed to um, adopt a more modern approach. And Google, I know, are very keen on this as well. So am I correct in thinking that this device has a kind of a, you can you can kind of take the, the, the Braille keyboard away and actually touch Braille then? You can, you can type yes, on the touchscreen. Yes, that, that is a very good point, um, that you can do that. Um, the idea is it's actually got a screen on this device so you can 
um, a calibrate, go through a calibration process where you put all 10 fingers on the unit and then once it's calibrated you can use uh, braille entry on the screen. So there are advantages for this obviously. The first is that uh, particularly for children and students in the classroom and lecture room and there is a huge uh, education following as far as the braille no products are concerned there always has been um you you're not getting silent braille entry it's kind of like a tick 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 sound mm. okay whereas with a keyboard it's more of a clattery clattery sound yeah yep. um so that's one advantage the second of course is that because it's got a screen on this device, it's ideal for people who are deafblind. Mm -hmm. Because what they can do, of course, is type messages maybe to their personal assistants, and the sighted personal assistant will be able to see what's on the screen, and they'll be able to type um, as well back to the deafblind individual. Strikes me that, you know, once you got used to this way of entering Braille, and there's people doing it on their iOS devices already, you'd probably get very fast very quickly. Well, I think you would. I have to say, when we tried it um, at the booth, it didn't work at all. Mm. Now, uh, you know, in, we have to be fairly forgiving about that because you're at a booth and there's lots going on. So you just may need to sit down and, and, and play with it a little bit to really get the idea of this. So I suppose um, a device like this, Brian's going to be ideal, and I know they've, they've a lot of um, literature on it already, ideal in schools, uh, in the education sector, for work. And I suppose the fact that you're running Android, you're opening yourself up to the Play Store. And I presume that they're kind of saying you can test out applications that will be up there. They may or I presume, you know, things may or may not work with the screen reader, depending on what you get. That's basically what they're saying, of course. Um, the apps have to be designed with accessibility in mind. Um, but they do plan to understand, uh, produce a list of apps that they know work well. It's quite interesting that the web experience has changed uh, from the traditional Keysoft way of doing things to Firefox with a special overlay on top of it. And of course, as, as well as the accessibility um, to the Play Store, um, you've got things uh, like um, the uh, keyword application that has been enhanced, the word processor, which has kind of been the mainstay of these uh, units anyway, the thing that people most use. Um, that supports a lot more formatting control, such as headings and bulleted lists and so on, and a lot more formats too, to come convert uh, your files to and from. Can you get QWERTY input on, on these devices? Because I'm thinking there's people who, who do like Braille, but again, as we said earlier, there's some people who like to type. Is that is that possible? Not as far as I know. Um, they, there's a lot on the web about this already. And one of the things that they have said is that um, there is not a QWERTY version at the moment. But okay. quite whether you can do anything about that, I'm, I'm not sure. And this, have we any price uh, price range or was there anything to discuss? I don't have a price range um, as such, except to say that um, it is going to be the same price as the Apex is at the moment, which kind of um, is, is, is very, very good because it uh, deals with, with a criticism which has come up um, that the cost is too high. Um, and in fact, what you're actually getting is a note taker which is at the same price as the one that's been around for years, but a whole lot more for your money. Um, and there are quite attractive trade-in options if you have an older unit 
as well. Whether they will extend to the UK and Ireland is yet to be seen. Okay, so I suppose, again, if people are interested and you're listening to this podcast, uh, contact Humanware, because I'm sure they'll be more than happy to talk to you about it. Um, so I suppose, Brian, we, we've had a, a, we have a, a Windows-based well, I was going to say a Windows-based note-taker. It's a Windows-based computer with note-taking yes. capabilities. We have a completely redesigned uh, Braille Note Touch. And now something that certainly I've been watching this product from afar for the last year and a half, almost two years. And indeed, I had a conversation with somebody six or seven months ago in the industry. And we were kind of saying, has this idea died? And I'm so glad to hear it hasn't because it's the Orbit, uh, the Orbit Reader, which is a production of um, Orbit Research and the Transforming Braille group, one of whom is uh, the RNIB in the UK, and I think there's Vision Australia, and I think the American Printing House for the Blind, and a couple of other organisations have come together to create a Braille display that they say is going to be significantly cheaper than all the rest. So, Brian, did you like it, and do you want it? Um, I don't want it personally, but you are very well informed. Um, Those are the organisations and a few more that have come together to create the Orbit Reader 20. That's its official title. And um, as you say, it's a collaboration between all of these people. It's expected to sell for around $500. Wow. Get, get that, $500. Wow. It's a Braille display and a note taker. It's six inches wide by four inches deep and one inch high. It's 20 cells of Braille display, hence the name. Eight input keys for your Braille entry, a cursor pad and two panning buttons. There uh, is no cursor routing. I was just about to ask you that. Okay, so there doesn't... Okay, that's interesting. No, there's no cursor routing. So it's um, you have to use other methods mm. in order to um, route the cursor to where you want. It's obviously got an SD card slot, as you can imagine, so you can put files onto it. The key difference between this and other similar units, apart from the cost, of course, is the way that the Braille line refreshes when you scroll. Because of the low-cost technology included in the unit, it takes, I would say, about a second to refresh the display. Now, APH, the uh, the primary, uh, um, obviously, organiser over there, where I was, they've made it very clear that their agenda is not to put the other Braille display companies out of business, of course. And, and given what I've just said, they're not going to do that. But nevertheless, I think it does provide a very good way for people on a fixed income or a parent of a blind child to really afford some refreshable Braille. And that's the important thing, isn't it? It is. And I suppose with all the talk that, you know, got um, we talked about it on this podcast so many times, which, you know, uh, the whole idea that, you know, Braille equals literacy, equals good education, equals employment. But also that I think when I was reading one of the one of the earlier press releases from the Transforming Braille Group, they were thinking, and I think they probably still are thinking, of the developing countries that, where maybe, you know, people just don't have access to this technology. They just cannot afford it. And this may be a way of getting Braille into countries and into schools where it might never have been before. That's absolutely right. And uh, in terms of the features, it is worth saying that there's no spell checker 
um, in this. It's very, very basic note-taking. But what it does have is Bluetooth connectivity and USB. So um, it can be used as a Braille display with the major screen readers. Um, so, for example, going back to what you were just saying there, uh, if you were in a developing country and you were using something like NVDA, for example, then presumably... Um, efforts have been made to ensure that it can work alongside that screen reader. It, yeah, and I mean, I suppose it, it struck me when I was kind of hearing about it and reading all about it that, you know, it, it's the type of thing I would, I'd be quite happy with that because I would use it with my phone and then I might Bluetooth it to my tablet or whatever. But if I paid $500, and that's even a little bit less in euro, by the way, I'd be very happy with a device like that. Well, yeah, absolutely. And um, they did mention in their presentations about um, connectivity with uh, particularly iOS and Android. So that was interesting. And I want to just tell you about the quality of the Braille on this device. I don't know if you've ever seen um, sometimes um, a Braille as it appears on a plaque or oh, a yeah. sign on yes. a room door, something like that. Mm. It's rather like that. It uh, does feel very, very firm to the to the touch. And that kind of has an advantage because uh, no dirt or grime can get in between the dots. So it's quite good to maintain. When are we likely to see this to market, or was that was there any any indication? Well, later this year, everybody's saying <laughs> later this year. Later this year, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, were, there was um, there was a Braille smart watch as well that perhaps we're not going to talk about now. Um, they were saying next year for that, but most things were were later this year, so it's okay. a little bit difficult to say. All right, so people might be getting lots of nice Christmas <laughs> presents. Uh, well, you if, never know. We, we could come back on a Christmas podcast, Stuart, and say. What what are you going to get let's, for Christmas? Let's, and let's, that might be on the list. Well, let's try and do it, Brian. I think it's well <laughs> worth bringing you back for that. Okay, so, so there's lots of Braille, obviously. Loads of very exciting things happening. I mean, I must say, when I was reading the blurb about CSUN and seeing all the stuff on Twitter, I was saying it really it is the year, the one year, it would be well worth being there just to get your hands on this stuff because you've made it so exciting. But the last device, the last thing I think that, that I, I want to chat to you about, because I know, in fact, you tweeted about this, I think, from the conference, was a whole series of products or services around Amazon, and in particular, a tablet, I think, that you saw. That's right. Before we get to the tablet, um, Amazon had a very significant presence at CSUN. I think it's important to just home in on that a little bit, because obviously they're very, very committed to um, accessibility. I attended one presentation in the Freedom Scientific Room, and this focused upon the modifications which are being made in terms of access to their website, so as to give visually impaired people a really good shopping experience. Now, many of us, of course, manage with the main Amazon site very well indeed, but for less experienced screen reader users, some things are a little bit confusing, such as when you're trying to add items to your wish list or delete items from your shopping basket. So they were showing how their access site, which is separate to the main um, desktop site includes some very good descriptions so you know exactly what it is that you're modifying and that access site is going to be rolled out to countries other than the US in due course. 
And the other point they were very keen several times to make was that all the design teams at Amazon, of which there are a huge number, are very committed to accessibility implementation. And the information about how to implement this uh, level of accessibility is regularly disseminated to all of those teams. So they wanted to make the point that they're all working together. Okay. So there's there's lots of good stuff going on on the web with Amazon. And as you say, it's going to be rolled out. But the device you saw is, is one that got you very yes. excited. Yeah. Okay. So tell uh, us all about it. So this is the Amazon Fire Tablet. You can have a tablet, Stuart, in your hands or which you can read books on, watch videos on, play music on, and a raft of other things as well, which talks for just $50. Wow. That's right. Okay. <laughs> they, w- they were really keen to show us uh, their new screen reader for these Fire tablets, which is called Voice View. And the way they did this was interesting. They um, had a booth, but you could also go to uh, a special room as well. Um, and you could sit down with, um, obviously, people who knew how to work these tablets, and uh, you could get a really good look at them. So there is a seven-inch screen model, okay? So that's the size of the screen, eight inches and ten inches. Now, certainly the seven-inch contains eight gigabytes of storage, that's internal, and the ten-inch contains either 16 or 32 gigabytes. You can extend any of those up to 128 gigabytes via a micro SD card. Now, the platform on which these tablets run uh, might be described as a subset of Android, but with their own screen reader, as I've said. And the way that you get around it is using the explore by touch method. So you essentially find something and double tap it. That's how it works. There are other gestures as well, but that's the main principle. So so you can, you're, you're talking about maybe uh, being able to read books, presumably Kindle books. You can listen to Audible with, with this? Device? Yes, you can listen to Audible. You can buy Kindle books. And that's one of the really appealing things about it to me. Um, you can buy uh, the Kindle books directly on the device. Yeah download it and start reading it right away. And can you, can you, for example, do things like use social networking on it? Could you use Twitter or Facebook? Yes, Twitter and Facebook. Um, there is an email section. I have to confess, we now have two of these. Tablets. Oh my God, very good. So, <laughs> um, so, so here's a product that actually is on sale. You can buy it right now. Yes, you can. You, this is one of the things you can actually buy right now. You couldn't buy it at the event. They wouldn't let you take them away. We did try, um, but you can come home and uh, you can buy it from your uh, your Amazon, Amazon store. Okay, and and presumably then this device. I mean, when you bought yours, uh, did you have to? Was it difficult to get them speaking when you turned them on? Well, I've only had it a couple of hours at the time of recording, um, and no, it wasn't difficult at all. Um, it was actually quite easy to do. Uh, you just turn it on, you put a couple of fingers on the screen, and it asks you to hold your fingers down if you want to enable voice view. And uh, the only thing that I would say, and you'll need to know this um, when you're setting up, there is a tutorial which is very, very well presented, and it guides you through how to work with a lot of the gestures. But uh, one of the things that you'll need to do is to input, obviously, your wireless network password. 
And this is achieved by their method of text entry, which is uh, quite interesting. Um, you, the way that you deal with it is that you hold your finger uh, down on the screen and you move it around and the letters and numbers are announced. And then when you get to the one you want, you release your finger and that enters it into the required space. So it's so, a bit like the touch typing on iOS? Yes, it's, exa- it's exactly like that, yes. Okay. Uh, um, it, 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 it strikes me as well because it's running some variant of Android. I wonder, and I know you may not know this yet, but I wonder, is it possible to get other synthesizers for it? From the Play Store or, or not? I don't know about that. Okay. Um, but certainly it is using the Ivona voices because, okay. of course, uh, Amazon own those now. Okay. okay. So um, my uh, preferred voice is American Ivona Sally. I have her just about everywhere. Um, but when you select, um, for example, UK English, I think it's Ivona Emma that's reading that out. So for things I can imagine reading, you know, Kindle books, you do like a, a, a natural sounding voice, don't you? And, and I tend yes. to, my, my reading habits on Kindle have tended to be, I read kind of, you know, factual stuff. I don't tend to read stuff that I would read from, say, Audible, which is more fiction and, you know, thriller. But I think I could get used to maybe switching over time. Yes, I mean, it's it's interesting. It's obviously a personal preference. My uh, preference is uh, for certainly for fiction titles. I love a human narrator. Mm. Um, but what, if, you, if you're desperate to read a book and it's not available in an audio format, and that's happened to me fairly recently, you're just going to do it. Sure. And, yeah. and, and in that case, I used eloquence even to read that particular book. And, and I suppose this is a new device, uh, a very new device, uh, and, and you know, it's generating a lot of, lot of excitement. And yes, it, is. It, it will only get better. It will. And uh, I think it's really good. They're already talking about uh, Braille access, because at the moment you would need to um, install Braille back, uh, which I understand is is uh, an Android um, uh, facility that you can install, um, where you can at least get some Braille output, but the Braille input is either non-existent or it's limited. There seems to be a bit of a differentiation of opinion on that. Um, but uh, Amazon have already publicly said that they are working on Braille support. So I look forward to be able to um, use my Braille display um, at, to um, not only read titles, but also to do things like searching for books. Because uh, w- what we did is we actually bought um, a Bluetooth keyboard to go with this, um, which has specific keys on it for this uh, Fire tablet to enable you to get to different places and to change the volume level and that sort of thing. I'm also wondering, and you may not know this either, but for example, if you're putting music on it, can you just plug it into your computer and it comes up as a drive? Because Android devices tend to do that. Um, so, so maybe that's that's another you know, I, use. I don't know about that. I will certainly look at it. Okay. Um, but um, Amazon are very keen for you to use um, their Prime service. Uh, they do promote this very heavily. And of course, one of the uh, attractions of Amazon Prime is music and movies. So you can actually uh, stream uh, quite a, an extensive range of both of those things. Although, as I understand it, um, that is somewhat limited in Ireland. 
unfortunately. Okay, okay. we'll have to uh, keep an eye on that. I mean, I, I'm one of these people who tends to use my phone for everything. But of course, the drawback to that is you eat through the battery, especially if you're spending a day reading books or you know, right. watching something. So this is another alternative and it's not going to cost the earth. And uh, you've got me quite excited, Brian. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, we, we couldn't let you go just without asking uh, how your own CSUN experience in terms of your own company. And I know that Lisi is getting a lot of talk. How did the presentation go? It went really well. Well, thank you. And um, not only did the, did the presentation go well, but we kind of uh, followed Amazon's lead. We actually had a, a suite in the hotel where we could uh, invite people to lunch and for demos of our products. Because when you're at an exhibition, it's very difficult to really sit down with somebody and ask, uh, um, ask any questions and get a, a real meaningful demo. So that is the way that we chose to go. And it, for us, it, it did pay off because obviously people who were genuinely interested were asking lots of intelligent questions. And hopefully they came away uh, thinking that um, we were able to provide a great service as a company. I have no doubt they did. Uh, Brian, thank you for bringing CSUN very much to life for our podcast listeners. Maybe next year you and me will actually get to San Diego together. You'd never How know. How about that? We can, we can have a drink at the pool or something. <laughs> right. Well, I'll, I'll try. I'll ask nicely and see what can happen. <laughs> Brian, for the moment, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Brian Hartston there. I thoroughly enjoyed that chat. In fact, I have to say, I've enjoyed every bit of this podcast, producing this podcast. It's always a pleasure putting this together, I have to say. But sometimes you do some really interesting interviews and uh, our three participants this month were really super. So sincere thanks, Dave, Amy and Brian. Haven't gone on Amazon yet, by the way, to buy this tablet, but um, yeah. It might happen before next month's podcast. I'll keep you posted. Now, before we go, two quick pieces of information. We had a lovely email from Michael Lavin. Um, Michael, thanks for getting in touch. And he thoroughly enjoyed Paul Trainer's piece on Windows 10 from the March edition. And he was also saying that he was delighted that we had talked about uh, sort of running Windows 10 on older machines. He has a, a machine that's, I think, six or seven years old. So we answered that question for him. And Michael, thank you so much for getting in touch. Martin Kelly, a member of the Newbridge Computer Computer Club was in touch to uh, tell me that the next meeting of that uh, of the Newbridge Computer Club is on Friday the 22nd of April around 10.30am at the Kildare Volunteer Centre in Cutlery on, on Cutlery Road in Newbridge. Now, they are going to be visited at that meeting by a representative from Kildare County Library who's going to be talking about a new uh, way or a new piece of software to allow you to borrow, bo- to borrow uh, titles and it's called BorrowBox and we don't know anything else about it but if you'd like to find out more, you're welcome to come along to the Kildare, the the rather the Newbridge Computer Club um, on the 22nd of April. And I think that will be well worth attending. That's just about it. It's been a very long podcast, but I hope you've enjoyed it. Have a great month and join us in May when, amongst other things, I'll be speaking with Rebecca Lenehan from NUIG about a very innovative invention. Uh, also, Twitter is going to be starting with our tutorials. Amy's set the scene for us. Let's hope I can do as well. Until May. This is Stuart Lauder saying thanks for listening. Have a good month and goodbye.